Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Robert Talese, who is Professor of Philosophy and Director of Graduate Studies at Vanderbilt University. He specializes in contemporary political philosophy with particular democratic theory and political epistemology. His current research is focused on democracy, polarization, public ignorance, and egalitarianism. Welcome, Bob. Hi, how are yeah, you? Thanks for doing this. So uh, I want to start with one of your essays, a uh, problem of polarization. Uh, the narratives sure. about the, the danger posed by polarization saturate contemporary political commentary. Um, th- th- that's probably, um, probably stated uh, less forcefully, Bob. <laughs> uh, you also say <laughs> what is not clear in the popular discourse, though, is what is meant by polarization beyond the general condition of intransigence among politicians. So, so let's start there. What, so what, is, what do you mean by polarization? Well, that's, that's a good place to start, Gil. Um, so, you know, everyone, you know, complains about polarization. In fact, you know, when President Biden, President-elect Biden, you know, did his uh, victory uh, speech a couple of weeks ago, um, he was complaining about polarization and the, the bitter partisanship and uh, was calling for political healing in the country. Um, so I want to just start by sort of separating out two different um, senses of the term polarization. And one will be familiar, I think, to listeners. Um, and the other will be a little bit less familiar. Um, the familiar sense of polarization, I also think, um, isn't really such a problem for mm-hmm. democracy. Um, it's the less familiar sense of polarization that I think makes trouble. So let me lay, just lay out that sort of um, yeah. distinction, and then we can get into some details. So one familiar uh, sense of, the, of polarization, as it's you know, appealed to in thinking about politics, is to, to think of polarization as what we might think of as the ideological mm-hmm. distance between, let's say, just two parties. 
Uh, they could be two political parties or two factions or two formations uh, of some other kind, two units of some other kind. But since we're talking mainly about the United States now, let's let's just think in terms yeah. of major parties. So polarization is a is is a condition where the two parties are ideologically so distant from one another that the common ground between them drops out and thereby leaving no basis for cooperation or compromise or even strategic things like bargaining because there's there's no you know it's it's always a bridge too far there's no there's no way to to get across the chasm to reach the other side even if all you want to do is try to strike a bargain with them now that's a familiar sense of polarization and i think that in the popular idiom that's what people complain about when they use the term yeah. polarization, um, because polarization in this right. sense leads to, um, you know, log jams and um, bottlenecks and a lot of resentment and uh, a lot of frustration because the two major parties just can't yeah. get together. Yeah, that's that so interesting, Bob. You know, it's sort of a so you say it's an effective distance between political opponents, uh, sort of a quantification. So I was thinking that uh, in the U.S. we have only effectively only two parties, uh, but if you look at parliamentary systems, um, uh, you know, the French system, perhaps the Indian system, India has changed lately, but uh, it used to be that there are a lot of different parties. And so would that mean that, you know, the distance between those political opponents, as you say, is a lot lower, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. There's a lot of noise yeah. in the middle. And so do we have yeah. any sort of um, observations when you have a lot, uh, uh, lot more flexibility and a lot more parties in the system that it's less problematic? So in, in some senses, yes, that when you have multi-party or parliamentary systems, um, th this sense of polarization is somewhat mitigated. Of course, we all know from just looking at the, the, the politics of countries with parliamentary systems, there are still coalitions that build among parties that are similarly yeah. politically aligned. And they can sometimes, you know, sort of huddle together uh, on on one end of a political spectrum uh, and their opponents form another coalition. And so you can get the same dynamic as it were. So it's not, a, but it's less severe and it's, it's less frequent, I should say, just as an empirical matter in parliamentary and, and uh, even non-parliamentary systems that have very strong third parties. But still, even in these cases where it looks as if multi-party systems um, mitigate the trouble, you can still get it. And let me just make a, a, another kind of distinction, because if we're thinking of polarization as, as we're saying, the ideological distance between opposed parties, you know, we can start saying, well, how do we measure ideological distance? What's the metric that we're talking about? Now, it's very common, as we have been in, you know, as, as we've just been discussing it, to think about ideological distance um, between parties uh, always in terms of or mainly in terms of the sort of legislative agendas 
of the parties, the official platforms of the parties, or even the political commitments of party leaders and candidates yeah. and office holders who affiliate with the party. Now, when we're talking about parliamentary systems, systems with very strong uh, uh, third and fourth parties, you get less alignment on those metrics. So yes, that's a way of mitigating. However, there's another way of understanding the metric of ideological yeah. distance. And that's to look not at the office holders and the official documents of the parties, but to look at the rank and file citizens who affiliate with the parties. And there we get a slightly different kind of story, both in the US and even in uh, multi-party parliamentary democracies, where you see in contemporary democracies, perhaps especially pronounced in the US, but not unique yeah. to the US, you see citizens hmm. dividing, despite the fact that they might be uh, of slightly different partisan affiliation, even in multi-party systems, you get roughly left-leaning, like the Greens <laughs> and the Progressives, sort of, um, uh, uh, despite their, 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 their nuts and bolts policy divides, they have similar attitudes about the people on the other <laughs> side of the spectrum. That is, one way of thinking about how to measure ideological distance is to look at the attitudes that citizens take towards their partisan opponents. And in that sense, polarization is about animosity, is about uh, uh, um, dislike uh, uh, for perceived political mm -hmm. opponents. And I think that when we think of sort of polarization as ideological distance, and we focus on cross-partisan animosity, mm -hmm. It doesn't look as if, um, you know, parliamentary or, multi, or strong multi-party systems do a lot to mitigate that. That is, it looks like that can rise uh, uh, irrespective of um, uh, the number of parties or how strong the parties are or whether each party gets proportional representation in legislative bodies. So, yeah. so and, and here's the thing about the United States, just last yeah. point to, to make on this. You know, people in the states, particularly who might be listening, will be surprised, I think, to hear this. But when we look at regular rank and file citizens' beliefs and commitments about what government should be doing, their sort of policy, you know, uh, 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 commitments, American citizens are no more divided at the level of policy preferences than they were. 40 years ago. And in fact, on certain kinds of policy questions, they're less divided than they were 40 years ago. Interesting. However, and here's, the, yeah, good. It, yeah. People are surprised at that. And here's the reason why it's surprising to us. Because despite the fact that we're no more divided, and in many key cases, less divided than we were 40 years ago, we <laughs> hate each other more. That is that the the the, the cross partisan animosity has uh, has intensified yeah. in a way that's yeah. wholly incommensurate with actual policy mm. divisions. So that is that is so interesting. So conceptually, what you're saying is, if you put everybody in a room, 
regardless of the system and structure, whether it's parliamentary, whether it's a two-party system, uh, there is a tendency towards separating into two blocks uh, wherever you go. And I was wondering, you know, there has to be some sort of an evolutionary uh, basis for this. Uh, Perhaps, you know, when the clans fought, uh, they fought against you know, there will be only two clans fighting against each other or something. Uh, perhaps 50,000 years, we just fought against one enemy. And, you know, wherever you go, you're looking for that that one block of people that you want to hate the most. And so, you know, it's short of uh, whatever initial conditions given, it sort of uh, becomes a two-party system wherever you go. Yeah, and, you know, what you're describing Gil is exactly right in the following sense. You know, we've got lots of pretty um, robust social scientific findings that have been conducted in all kinds of contexts with people of various ages, from teenagers to, you know, uh, people who are advanced in age, where you get a large enough group of human individuals together, they will find some way to establish in-group and out-group <laughs> identities based on, you know, in some experimental context, pretty far-fetched, <laughs> you know, you know, we'll inv- we're the kinds of creatures that will invent some mm-hmm. salient difference for the purpose of creating a boundary between the cool kids and the kids who aren't cool, between the in-group and the out-group, between the friends and the adversaries. This does seem, you know, again, I know I'm not sure what the right evolutionary, um, uh, um, you know, explanation, uh, uh, what the just so story should be for this, but it does, but, and, you know, you suggested one that seems plausible to me uh, that it's rooted in, in, in sort of our evolutionary background in tribal uh, uh, societies with under conditions of moderate okay. scarcity, so on and so forth. And rivalry for mates, you know, you could bring in, a, a, the, you know, the, yeah. the, the usual suspects uh, uh, to describe this. But, it's, you know, leaving that that part aside, because it's it seems, yeah, we're the kinds of creature that. Um, you know, it's sort of the dark side, we might say, of the the often cited, uh, you know, quote from Aristotle. You know, humans, you know, man is a is a is a is a political meaning social here. Man is a social animal. It's like, yeah, well, what does it mean to be a social animal? Well, it turns out that what it means to be a social animal is to have friends and adversaries and to cluster together in subgroups. Uh, where you um, make dis- distinctions between the people who are with you and the so, people who aren't with you. Uh, that's what families and villages and communities yeah. are. In so a so sense. that is what you call yeah. political yeah. polarization. Um, and, but there is another yeah. type of polarization you want. So you call it belief polarization. And you say that is more problematic than the former. Right. Yeah. So, you know, let's just say yeah. very quickly. Um, you know, political polarization, which is what we've just been discussing, doesn't strike me, at least, uh, you know, now with my democratic theorist hat on, doesn't strike me as particularly troubling for a democratic society. Because after all, you might think, you know, pretty intuitively, it's like, well, that the parties are different, that the political parties wrangle with one another, that there's some heat 
in their uh, disagreements that even there's some level of um, of 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 animosity and distrust might not be so bad for democracy because after all these are ways of signaling to the broader population of of you know of citizens the difference between the parties right you know you've got a especially if you've got a two party system like uh, we have in the United States it's like it's really important for mobilizing yeah. voters to make it easy for them to understand what the differences are between you know the two parties and their candidates so it doesn't strike me that hostility even as such is bad for democracy in fact you know my own views on these things is eh, you know democracy is about disagreement and when you're disagreeing about important things like freedom and justice and equality things are going to get heated that's just part of democracy is the thesis that nonetheless we can govern ourselves despite the fact that we disagree about this important stuff so if polarization simply means political polarization it's not clear to me yet what the problem is so let's th now think of a different phenomenon also called polarization um, as, as you put it, I call it belief polarization. In, in some of the literature, this is called uh, uh, group polarization. But I, I think that the, the term group polarization is misleading. Both forms of yeah. polarization are about groups. The reason why I want to talk about belief polarization uh, as this other kind of polarization is because it's a cognitive phenomenon. It's, 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 it's the product of certain social dynamics. So whereas Whereas political polarization is the ideological distance between two opposed groups, belief polarization is a cognitive phenomenon that works inside mm -hmm. like-minded groups. So you can have belief polarization even in the absence, we might say, of an opposing group because it's not a, it's not a metric of distance between two opposed things. Now, what belief polarization is, is... Um, uh, you know, it's it's the umbrella or the, the more general phenomenon that we in the vernacular tend to recognize as sort of the yes man phenomenon uh, or the group think phenomenon. That is belief polarization is the tendency. Uh, very robust, by the way, um, uh, of members of like minded yeah. groups in the course of their interaction with one another to each shift into a more extreme <laughs> version of themselves. So, you know, the, we can talk about the particulars of the experiments if you like, but let me just say yeah. the more general thing. Yeah. You walk into a, a room of people who all affirm your view about some issue, and not only do you become more confident that you're right mm. about that issue, your belief actually shifts into a more extreme version of your antecedent view about that issue. So if you, if you walk into a room and everyone tells you that you're right uh, uh, about the death penalty, uh, the more you interact with people who keep telling you you're right, the more, not only the more ardent a death penalty advocate will you be, you'll start coming to think that the death penalty is warranted in more and more cases with respect to a widening number of offenses. Um, they found this, by the way, in, 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 in uh, a range of, jur of mock jury experiments. Yeah, yeah. Where, you know, when the jury all agrees 
that the, the person is guilty, when the jury all agrees that the infraction is serious, the longer they talk, the more punitive they want to be when they're talking about punishments. Uh, that's just one yeah, kind so, of case. So it, but yeah. Is it the same phenomenon, Bob, you know, conformation, so your desire to conform to a, a system, a group, uh, and, and, you know, if you had any doubts, uh, you're getting feedback that sort of confirms your re- initial thinking. So, so those two biases, right. as we know, exist in scientific uh, arenas as well. Is that what's driving uh, the creation of that more, more extreme version of yourself? Well, in some cases, yes. Yeah. So, you know, one sort of intuitive thought is the one you yeah. you just mentioned, right? That, well, here's the, here's the mechanism of this. We become more confident and more extreme because, you know, we hear more and more confirming voices, which means we hear fewer and fewer disconfirming uh, voices. We're, we we are blind or insensitive to the fact that the, the argument pool that we're exposed to is all sort of um, fixed in a way to be confirming. And we also know, in addition to all the more common, you know, biases about, you know, confirmation and all the rest, um, we also know that when we hear a new consideration offered, in favor of something we already believe. We tend systematically to overestimate its evidentiary value, no matter what its value might be, that it's novel, that it strikes us as, well, that's one I hadn't heard before. That attitude about its novelty translates into, uh, systematically translates into an overestimation of its, of, of its weight as evidence. So one way to think about how this happens is is like the yes man thing. You hear all these voices saying yes, 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 and you know that's when you 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 escalate everything. However, that can't be the whole story. I mean, that seems to be what's going on in a lot of cases, and maybe in a lot of cases where if we're thinking about sort of online. Uh, uh, communication about politics, for example, and you know we're thinking about echo chambers and these sorts of phenomena. It does look like the the the, the stricter yes man, you know, where you're just getting confirmed all the time, uh, is is yeah. is the right model. However, it turns out that you can induce these extremity shifts even in the absence of any exchange mm-hmm. of information. So what some researchers have found is that you can get belief polarization simply in virtue of people noticing one another as like-minded. Now, one way to think about how that happens is, you know, just to go back to the the, the evolutionary sort of story that we might want to, we might want to tell eventually about this sort of, you know, you're in a like-minded group we're also the kinds of creatures who it matters to us how our friends see us. And so when we identify with an in-group, we want to seem to the other members yeah. of the in-group uh, authentic, not, you know, we don't want to seem to be willy-nilly or posing, right, or inauthentic members. And so the way this sometimes happens is each person simultaneously is gauging the level of every other in-group member's commitment to the like-minded belief, and each person wants to seem desirably distinctive Mm. from the mean, 
And so we simultaneously each escalate <laughs> a little bit, but that moves the mean, of course, right? And so you can see how then you, you get this shift towards extremity. Yeah. Now that's yeah. often, often also how this happens. But let me just say one last thing on this. It turns out that kind of social comparison story where you're trying to prove yourself to be slightly more authentic than the average guy in the group, that can't be the whole story either. Because we've also found out that you can get the extremity shift in the absence of any basis for social comparison. That is, we've some research has found you can get the extremity sh shift by showing somebody a pie graph <laughs> <laughs> that shows them, hey, Gil, the people like you, they also think this thing that you think, right? <laughs> right? So right. you show a vegetarian, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Hey, you know, you're, you're a vegetarian? <laughs> well, guess what? Vegetarians really tend to be, you know, tend to have opposition to um, genetically modified right. Right. Uh, crops. And that's all it takes. That's not a yeah. new piece of information. And that's not even the basis for comparing your status within the in-group. It's merely what I call corroboration. It's merely just making somebody's sense of, one, of their group identity salient to them and then nudging them in that sort of Sunstein failure sense, then nudging them saying, hey, the people that are like you, are also like you in this other respect. Don't you want to still be like them? You know, it's um, last point on this. It's more like it's it's less. You know, the the belief polarization phenomenon is less like uh, uh, you know the, the yes man uh, phenomenon and the sort of what goes on in small yeah. deliberative groups. It's it's less like that than it's like you know fans in a stadium, right? right? When you go and watch your favorite sports team at home. Uh, playing an important game, you know, the pressures, and they don't even feel like pressures to us. They actually feel like the assertions of our individuality, but the pressures to be, to conform with the other fans, to dress like them, to yell like them, to participate in coordinated, but spontaneous activities with them, like cheering or doing the wave. Th these are very severe pressures. And if you're a sports fan, you know, you show up at the stadium having taken steps to look like the other fans. You've put on the same kinds of clothes or worn the same colors. And if the team is winning, you can feel your enthusiasm escalate. You can feel your sense that the team is excellent escalate. Your estimation of the team and its players starts, in, it starts intensifying simultaneously with that your negative attitudes towards the away team and their fans starts escalating as well you start looking with pity on the other team or you start seeing the other team's fans as enemies as adversaries uh this explains by the way a lot of hooliganism yeah, so in europe the mechanism <laughs> that you describe um, is quite interesting so uh, if i understand correctly you have an anchored position and you can basically take any type of information shown to you and and expand it uh in essence you know you you can have an expanded horizon you know uh, it's almost like mutation <laughs> you, you you mutate uh 
slightly severe position because that is a more dominant position for you to be in after having gotten some some more information. And so, 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 so you say in the in the essay, Bob. Yeah, the political polarization we expect that to happen. We see that everywhere. In some ways, that's a foundational aspect of how democracy works. Uh, but the, the problematic issue as a threat to democracy is what you say is this belief polarization, right? So why do you think that it is a threat to democracy? So let me, um, good, Gil. Um, let me just sort of, the, the, the part about the stadium that I ended on, I think, is where you start seeing where the threat to democracy comes in the belief polarization phenomenon. Because remember, as we become more extreme versions of ourselves through the belief polarization phenomenon, we start to adopt more intensely negative attitudes and dispositions towards those that we perceive to be outside of our social identity, those who we perceive to be, you know, the, the, the out group. In the political case, of course, one easy way to put it is, as we become politically our more extreme selves, we start to adopt more intensely negative attitudes and evaluations and dispositions towards members that we perceive, people who we perceive to be members of the other side. They don't even have to be members, you know, they don't have to be card carrying, you know, party members even. They just have to look to us like they're members of uh, 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 of the other party or that they affiliate with the other party or are loyal to the other party. Now, the reason why this is problematic is because, and you know, here's the here's the philosophy part of uh, uh, of the view, yeah. if, if we could put it that way. You know, democracy is a lot of things. You know, when we're talking about democracy, we often, you know, instantly reach for the thoughts about you know votes and campaigns and lobbyists and constitutions and lawmaking and and, and these sorts of things. And democracy is all of that for sure. And, you know, democracy is a collection of institutions and practices and offices and processes for choosing uh, uh, um, uh, uh, office holders, so on and so forth. However, that's not all democracy is. And in fact, I would want to say that those institutional and uh, um, uh, those institutional forms that we associate with democracy, those processes and practices uh, that we associate with democracy. It's really hard to make good sense of, of why we bother with them unless we think that democracy is even more fundamentally a commitment to the idea of self-government self among political equals. That's what democracy is. It's, a, it's sort of a moral ideal. It's the thought that we can govern ourselves as we can achieve a relatively just and stable, decent social order in the absence of rulers and kings and royalty and bosses politically. That is that we can achieve a relatively decent, just social order as equal sharers in self-government. So when, we're think when we think that thought, by the way, we typically... Uh, think about um, how that idea of political equality constrains what governments can do. That is that governments are required in a democratic society, in legislating, uh, to recognize our equality. Um, however, and, and 
that's true. That That is part of what political equality means, is that there are certain things governments can't do, certain things governments can't do, even if majorities want yeah. them to do it. Right? Um, yeah. However, political equality also, also places requirements on us as citizens. That is, part of what it is to be a successful, uh, a proper, we might even say democratic citizen, is to recognize one another's equality yeah. as a citizen. That is to recognize that the fact that my guy won the election doesn't mean I'm ruling over you now. It means you're still my equal. We, you know, we're still we're still citizens. Even when you lose, I sim- I, I don't get to tell you to shut up. Right? For example, so um, we as democratic citizens owe a certain level of regard for one another. Particularly, we owe it to one another to to maintain within ourselves the moral capacity, I want to say, to see even in our political opponents equality, right? Belief polarization erodes that capacity. Belief polarization makes those who we perceive to be different from us look depraved, irrational, alien. So belief polarization erodes the capacity to see our political opponents as nonetheless right. our political equals. That's the threat to democracy, I think, that belief polarization Yeah, so, so one symptom uh, I think about, about, you know, it used to be that uh, we were able to debate, right? We were able to debate issues. And there were rules of engagement in a debate um, you know, you're taking uh, what the other person says and you're analyzing it and you're providing why that might be um, might be an inferior argument. So there are, there are you know, there, there is a, there is a set of rules that, uh, that utilize to do. Mm-hmm. Um, in the public arena today, we don't really have debates. We don't see that at all, right? Um, we have essentially shouting matches and, and opinion-based proclamations, uh, but really no debates mm-hmm. at all. So we'll take a, a quick break, Bob, and when we come back, I think we have a good segue into your other paper about civility. Great. Okay, thank you. Perfect. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. And so we are back, uh, Bob. Um, we've been talking about polarization, um, different types, political polarization, which you say in your essay, is sort of a necessary evil for a good democratic system. Uh, but the, the problem we have is more of what you call a belief polarization. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the mechanism of uh, people getting more extreme by uh, by interacting with um, people that they like, uh, they, 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 they spend time with. Uh, I, I tend to, I, I'm thinking of this, Bob, as more of a mutation process. Uh, they mutate 
<laughs> more and more severe uh, forms of themselves. And they move to further and further corners of the room they're in. Uh, and, and that is, you say, is a problem for democracy. Um, now, there is another problem potentially for democracy. You have another paper here uh, entitled Semantic Dissent, More Trouble for Civility. And you say it's commonly observed by commentators from across the political spectrum in the United States that the past decade has been a marked intensification, has seen a marked intensification of political antagonism. And you say office holders and party officials seem to have lost the capacity to cooperate with those who do not share their political affiliation, resulting in political deadlock and stagnation. Now, th th this doesn't require any further explanation uh, in the U.S. <laughs> if you just watched uh, last, uh, not just four years, perhaps even longer. Um, right. But this idea of civility um, is really a fundamental one. You know, we, we were talking about debates, how debates used to be conducted in the past. And I have to say, you know, even when I was growing up in India, um, I mean, that's a long time ago. Um, the, you know, there was this idea when there is an election, uh, there used to be a debate, right? You, you take issues, you take ideas, you debate with each other. Uh, that, that is gone now. We don't do that anymore. So, so what happened to us? So, you know, let me um, try to fill in some of the connective tissue because I think that the beginning of the story about the decaying of civility. And I would even say, as I say in that semantic dissent paper, the decaying of the concept even of <laughs> civility, let alone the actual manifestation of it, um, again, has to do with um, uh, the, the, the polarization phenomena that we discussed in the yeah. first part. Because note, when belief polarization is rampant, that is when we are hived together in like-minded groups, when we are um, uh, surrounded with uh, features of the social environment that prime our political identities and sort of make salient certain features uh, of, of, of those identities and, and, and uh, stimulate us to, to think of ourselves as, you know, conservative or liberal first, mm. uh, 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 American second, um, that, you know, belief polarization it works as um, a signal to party uh, leaders and candidates and office holders. That is, when the citizenry of a democracy is heavily belief polarized, when they're hived off together in their separate camps that, you know, where they're each living lives that are aimed at intensifying their partisan identification, it creates a real easy strategy for political parties and leaders and campaigners to mobilize their bases. And in fact, it turns out in the United States, but not only in the United States, you know, because we're such a heavily belief polarized citizenry, yeah. the you know, political candidates, candidates for national office in particular, you know, winning elections at the national level in the states is no longer a matter of changing anybody's mind about anything. It is primarily a matter of extracting political behavior from the people who already agree with the things you're inclined to say. 
it's a it's an attention economy rather than a, a, a political economy based on reasons and and deliberation. It's about capturing the attention of enough of the people who already agree with you, so that you can stimulate in them, so that you can motivate in them certain forms of political behavior, like campaign contributing, canvassing, and especially voting. And so, what we see is that in the United States. As the citizenry has become increasingly belief polarized, the political parties have adopted this strategy of amplifying their differences, right? right? Uh, of valorizing intransigence, right? The the stance of being non cooperative mm-hmm. with the other side is now seen as as a a, a, a mark of political strength mm-hmm. and commitment, blaming the other side for anything that goes wrong while taking credit for your side, for anything that happens that isn't bad, right, is the sort of natural strategic outcome of a democratic system with a heavily belief polarized citizenry. So you can see that it doesn't pay as a strategic matter now for politicians to care about debate. It doesn't pay for them to do that. That just muddies the waters, because if you're really interested in in debating, at some point, you're going to have to concede things to the other side if you're really doing it, because every once in a while, the other guy says something where you're like, well, look, you're right about that (laughs) thing, but, you know, we're still disagreeing over here. And that just muddies the waters. You know, when you have a heavily belief polarized citizenry, you want to sort of amplify and um, intensify the sense that there's no middle ground to be occupied and debate can't permit that. So what we have instead in the country is what, um, what I call another work with a, with a philosophy colleague named Scott Aiken. You have mimicked debate, pseudo debate, counterfeit debate. You have these verbal exchanges that are designed to look like reasoned in- interactions, interactions on the basis of reasons, when in fact they're competitions for sound bites yeah, right okay so um that's the background here now the bit about civility is very very interesting in the united states because you know here's the this here's a sort of good uh, you know good news bad news uh, 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 tale um in the united states the overwhelming majority of citizens agree that Politics at the national level in particular has become too toxic, too driven by animosity and rivalry. The overwhelming majority of American citizens say they want more cooperation, more civility, more concession, uh, more consilience among uh, among politicians and office holders. That's the good news. Here's the bad news, though, Gil. When you ask those same citizens... Well, okay. What you know? What steps can we take to make a more civil, cooperative polity? The answer is: tell the people on the other side to do more of what my side tells them to do. So we all want civility, but we tend to think of civility as resignation (laughs) from the other side, (laughs) right? We think that civility really is a matter of the other side just giving in. That is, we blame incivility almost strictly on the other side. By the way, you can see this in uh, the United States today in debates about 
you know, uh, the outgoing president's behavior and, you know, in, in the wake of the election, uh, the some of the intransigence of some of the uh, Republicans uh, in Congress. He was like, well, yeah, but Obama started it, you know. <laughs> so it gets into this debate about who threw the first right. punch or who established the incivility. Because, no, you know, the, the, the funny thing about what we might think of as the sort of the, 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 the public political virtues yeah. Yeah. is that like civility is, is that they're intrinsically um, uh, reciprocal. Let me explain that. That's a, that's a philosophy way of a philosopher's way of, 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 of putting a, a point that I think is, is not that, not that um, uh, alien. Let me, let me ask um, you a question. Let me go there. Yeah. Let me ask you a quick question. Go there. Quick question. So, quick question. Yeah. So, um, is, is there a point that so suppose we can measure the polarization that we talked about? Is there a point of no return? What I think is that suppose I take a society, 80 million people wear blue shirts, 80 million people wear red shirts, and they are not willing to wear, willing to change their shirts ever, right? That number is <laughs> fixed now. Um, right. Is that a point of no return in the sense that, you know, whatever we talk about in terms of politics and, and, and I think that, you know, if I understand you correctly, anything else that you do other than getting, if you are a blue guy, getting all the blue shirts out to vote is the only thing you can do. There's nothing else that needs to be done. Right. Um, so I think there is a point of no return. I, you know, I'm um, I'm not an entirely optimistic democratic theorist, <laughs> put it that way. Um, and so, you know, one thing that um, I, you know, one thing that doesn't come up in the two articles of mine that you read, but let me just lay it out very yeah. quickly, because it strikes me that we are living in a society in a democratic society that is so heavily belief polarized which creates all the strategic incentives for political polarization and intensifying uh, 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 partisan uh, intransigence at the level of the parties and the office holders but at the same time as we become more belief polarized not only do we become more extreme versions of ourselves it turns out that we start seeing political significance in more and more of what we do. That is part of what part of what happens to us when we become more extreme is we come to see political valence or political um, uh, uh, messaging and expression in behaviors that arguably are not uh, intuitively at least um, political. So just think about how much political criticism in the United States today is mocking the other side's consumption habits, the cars they drive, the beverages they drink, where they do, the, you know, attention Walmart shoppers is the beginning of a joke about conservatives, mm. right? Uh, and that's because as we are heavily belief polarized in the country, our actual physical environments become coded in various ways that signal to others our political membership. You know, so I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm not originally from Nashville or from Tennessee. I'm originally from the Northeast, as, as if you couldn't tell from my accent. But, um, you know, in Nashville, Tennessee, 
the people you know who walk around wearing yoga pants yeah. and the people walk ar- walking around wearing camouflage are living just different kinds of social lives. They inhabit different kinds of social worlds where the you know, owning camouflage attire is heavily correlated with conservatism, or at least voting conservative. Um, going to yoga is something that um, liberals do, particularly liberal women right. do. Um, and if you think about it, sort of, you could look at the country, you know, who's voting for Joe Biden and who's voting for Donald Trump in the last election? highly correlated with the number of Whole Foods stores and the number of Cracker Barrel restaurants. Right. <laughs> if you tell me how close you are to a Whole Foods or a Cracker Barrel, I can predict how you voted in the last election. Mm. So, you know, th- that is that partisanship has sort of infected, has infiltrated the whole of our social lives so that all of those concerns that people raise about online, you know, social media feeds being echo chambers, you know, all that's right. The problem is our physical environments are also echo chambers. If you're buying coffee at Starbucks, the chances that the person standing behind you at line and the person who's the barista making your fancy drink is liberal is really high. The chances of running into unexpectedly a conservative at a Starbucks is very, very low. Similar, same thing goes in the opposite direction for Dunkin' Donuts. America runs on Dunkin', right? It's a, it skews heavily conservative. What this means is, you know, it's not a, you know, not a, a surprise, you might say that, you know, we like to be around people who are just like us. And, you know, as the ancient Greeks said, like goes with like, and so on and so forth. So that's not surprising. It's just that the idea is that if belief polarization can be initiated, mm-hmm simply by making a social identity salient and saying, hey, those people who are like you are like you in this additional respect. It's like, well, the world around us is an echo chamber now all of a sudden. Now, what that means is that if we have, as I believe that if we haven't, we're close to it. If we have reached the point of no return with this combination of belief polarization, political polarization, and political saturation, There's no way to, you know, if, if, if we're, you know, if, if this has become debilitating for democracy, as I think that it, it may have become, it strikes me that the solution can't be political. That is that more politics or even better politics can't be the answer to this problem because politics is the problem. It strikes me that, yeah, if we want to break out of this cycle of dysfunction mm-hmm. that comes with hyperpartisanship as the result of belief polarization and as the corollary result of the saturation of partisan politics into every aspect of our social lives, the only answer has to be to reclaim parts of our social lives for activities and encounters and engagements uh, that have no political valence whatsoever. So- That's different from, let me make one last point. That's different from saying that we need to reach across the aisle or, you know, join a softball league that's bipartisan. Bipartisan initiatives, initiatives that reach across the aisle are still placing politics at the center of the activity. I'm now being a bipartisan, you know, good democratic citizen by reaching across the aisle and shaking Mitch McConnell's hand or whatever it is. That's not the kind of thing that's going to help. The only thing that can help is trying to figure out something we can do together that's cooperative in which I just don't know what your politics are, because, not because I'm suppressing our political divisions or bracketing 
our, 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 our political divides, but because the activity has nothing at all to do with politics. We struggle to imagine what that could be. And I want to say that's a symptom of how bad things are. Yeah. yeah. So, so what you're saying, Bob, if I understand this correctly, it, it is really a social disease <laughs> that yeah. needs to be, um, you know, if you think about the, the country as, as a biological system, you need a different treatment for it. And it's not political. And so I want to return to the, this issue of civility. So, so one of the things you say here is civility as a reciprocal duty. And you say some duties are first personal while others are reciprocal. So what, what do you mean by those? So, you know, sometimes uh, we have a duty to behave in certain ways yeah. on the condition that the others around us are also behaving in that way. That's what I call a reciprocal duty. Mm -hmm. There are other kinds of duties that we have. Um, like we might say that um, we have a duty to be honest. And it doesn't matter how many liars there are around us. We're still under the, it's still wrong not to tell the truth, even if everyone around you is a liar. Now, there might be all kinds of strategic considerations where, you know, if people are being deceptive, there might be new strategic reasons why you might also be deceptive. But it's just strictly a moral matter. Right. The fact that people around you are liars or are dissemblers doesn't remove or doesn't erode the moral requirement of truthfulness. In fact, I would argue in a, you know, in a, a social context where everyone around you is a dissembler, it might even be more incumbent on you morally to be the truth teller. Right. Now, compare that with the. Uh, as I say in the paper, just, you know, think about the rule, the, the, the schoolyard rule, keep your hands to yourself. That's what I would call as a reciprocal duty. You have the duty to keep your hands to yourself, provided no one's hitting you. Right, right. <laughs> provided that everyone else is keeping their hands to themselves, you have a duty to keep your hand to keep your hands to yourself. So that when you're, you're, you know, when you're a kid and you're on the, on the playground, somebody comes and steals your ball or hits you, you're no longer under the requirement, right, to keep your hands to yourself. In fact, we would think it would be a it would be an immoral requirement to say, well, yeah, you know, Johnny hit Billy first, but Billy hit back, so Billy also didn't keep his hands to himself. That looks like a moral error. You want to say, no, 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 wait a minute. Once, you know, once the first guy hits the second guy, the rule to keep your hands to yourself is suspended at least for a moment because it's a rule that says keep your hands to yourself provided everyone else is doing the same. Now, it seems to me that civility and a lot of the political virtues are of that reciprocal character. That is, we, are, we owe one another civility provided that we are generally a community that shows civility to one another. We might say the same thing about certain for, certain forms of respect. I owe you respect. I don't owe respect to people who systematically humiliate me. Right? <laughs> I owe respect to people who show me respect. Right. In fact, we even have this sense, you know, respect is earned, you know, this kind of thing. I don't think it's quite as strong as that. But so civility is the kind of requirement in politics and democratic politics that looks like it's got this reciprocal character. And that's what makes it difficult. That's what makes civility a, you know, it's, it's easy in democratic theory and even in political commentary these days to hear 
uh, commentators and pundits and, and, and political theorists, you know, talk about civility as if it's the panacea. Right. The problem with American democracy is we've, you know, in fact, Joe Biden comes comes close in his acceptance speech to saying this. Right. We need to recapture civility. He says we need to listen to one another again. We need to see one another again. We need to heal. And it's going to start right now. We're going to treat each other as Americans, not as enemies. That's sort of a a, 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 a series of, of, of sentiments that I'm not saying are wrong. I mean, they sound good to me. I'm just saying like, yeah, the idea that civility is the panacea is the fix to all of this. It's like, well, that is, you know, that, that, that would be promising. Maybe that would be more promising were it not the case that yeah. because of the polarization phenomenon, we are inclined to see the other side as incapable of reciprocating. Yes. And yeah. so it's so, I'm, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, please. Right. Yeah, go ahead. You know, it's sort of an unstable system. So even if you take the system to a higher level, uh, it can come back to where it started or go worse uh, very, very easily because all it requires is somebody breaking the rule and, and thing thing gets back to where it started, right? That's right. Yeah. And note that breaking the rule in this case, like in the case of civility and a lot of these other political virtues, is, is far more a matter of the interpretation of other people's motives and intentions and dispositions than just strictly of their behavior. So let me give a, 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 an example of this. So we've got some experimental data that shows something like the following. Um, we've got some experimental data that show <clears throat> you present a Democrat, a, a, a liberal Democrat, with video where you show them conservatives stealing campaign signs for liberal candidates off of neighbors' lawns. Mm -hmm. And the, the subjects, the, the liberal subjects, see this as an incredible infraction mm -hmm. deserving of some pretty severe punishment and uh, uh, disapproval. They treat that video as confirmation that, you know, look, those conservatives, the Republicans really don't care about democracy. And you can fill in the rest of the story. And by the way, your intuitive sense of what a, a, a partisan, a liberal partisan's view of what those people did in that video, it would be pretty close to what, what happens in the experimental situation. It's very condemnatory, right? Yeah. yeah. You show those same, you show a similar group of people a video of their own guys stealing the conservative signs. And then you get all kinds of talk about, hey, that's, you know, that's part of the game. <laughs> that's just mischief, you know. Yeah. And if you ask them and you probe, you get some very interesting responses mm. that suggest that the difference in response is not simply ordinary hypocrisy. Like, it's okay when my guys do it, it's bad when they do it. You start getting responses when you query the difference in attitude. Because mm. you say, you want to say to these subjects, well, look, you know, when your guys did it, you thought it wasn't all that, it was just mischievous. When the other guys did it, you thought it was this terrible infraction. You know, but it's the same thing. Sometimes you get subjects who say, no, 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 it's not the same thing. When my guy steals the Republican sign, that's standing up for justice. That is serving the cause mm. of getting a good political result. 
When the other guy steals my candidate sign, they're serving injustice. So don't tell me they're doing the same thing. <laughs> now, that's a from the philosophical point of view, that's a deeply interesting, yeah. right, yeah. Uh, a phenomenon. Because no, you know, here's a philosopher's point, right? When we're talking about human actions, even down to the question of what did the person do, we are invariably asking a question. Given the physical movement of that person's limbs, what we might say the for the brute fact of the behavior, it's like what the person did is always a matter of interpreting their disposition, interpreting their intention, right? Interpreting them as agents is part of what we do when we're trying to even individuate an act. Like, what did you do when you did that? Well, you were serving injustice. When my guy did the same physical performance, he was serving justice. So the acts are not the same in the two cases. Now, all that is a fancy, you know, it's more philosophy than maybe uh, listeners are interested in. But, you know, thought is this. When we're talking about civility as a value. Yeah, yeah. It's like civility is just another political football. Civility is now just this term that we use where it looked as if, we introduced the concept of civility so that we can have some neutral, as you said, sort of higher order, you know, second order position from which to evaluate mm. our behavior as political actors. Then eventually, once, it once it's introduced into the vernacular, it just becomes another name. Incivility is just another way of saying and expressing your contempt for the other side. Right. Think about one other sort of phenomenon here. Fake news is a term that has the same feature to it, yeah. right? We introduced the term fake news because, by the way, this is, I, I think this is a pretty accurate description of the sort of uh, ideology, the, the, the causal history of the term. We introduced the term fake news because we wanted a term to talk about Jon Stewart's Daily Show. Which was something that was posing as a journalistic enterprise, but in fact was a comedic enterprise about the journalistic enterprise. So we would, you know, it's, it, we introduced the idea of fake news as a way of talking about a certain kind of satire that was posing as journalism. The yeah. term then morphed, right? Fake news then became the thing that you called what were attempts at journalism that were so polluted right. by moneyed interests and partisanship that they were not actually succeeding at journalism. Then it morphed one more time with Donald Trump. Right. right. Fake news now, you know, very quick into his candidacy, fake news became the thing that you called reportage that you did not like. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so the, the, the point about semantic dissent hmm. is that, the normative terms that we have for evaluating one another's performance as democratic citizens right, right. are subject to this kind of sort of um, dissent from being the sort of higher order evaluative stance where we're sort of standing above the political debate and saying, well, wait, you're being unfair there. You're not being civil there. And I can call you uncivil in a way that's consistent with me agreeing with everything you're saying. Two, civility then becoming, you know, descending into the first order, where now nobody says that somebody on their own side is being uncivil. Because being uncivil is tantamount to just saying that you hate what the guy's talking about. 
Yeah, so, yeah, so basically, basically, if you have a problem like this, Bob, if you let it go, it will find the the minimum most position for society. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's true. You know, sort of how, you know, how, how some of these concepts sort of do, or some of these points about politics sort of do have correlates and sort of heavily analogical sort of thoughts about physics, you know, about sort of the hard sciences is really interesting. But that seems entirely right to me that there's just no, you know, the, the sec, let me put it in a, in a more principled way in this, in this sense. Yeah. Democracy is about disagreement among political equals. That just strikes me as a sort of ground, you know, that's ground floor, you know, democratic theory. Right. Part of what it is to be an equal is to be able to think your own thoughts. We're thinking our own thoughts. We're going to come to different conclusions, even if we're relatively equally good at looking at the facts and the evidence and weighing things. We're still going to have disagreement, just like you do in a scientific community, by the way. So yes. um, democracy is about managing disagreement. One of the ways that we manage disagreement is through institutions, but putting all that aside, one of the other ways we manage disagreement is we have to develop a vocabulary for evaluating and assessing our own and others' performance as disagreeing citizens. We need right. to, as you were saying earlier, you know, we need to, there's got to be ground rules that we have to be able for, for democratic debate, that we have to be able to give articulation to, that we have to be able to hold one another to. We have to be, we need terms and principles and concepts that enable us to say what you just said is unfair or out of bounds or beyond the pale or undignified or um, uh, uncivil or in some other way objectionable. And similarly, we need a vocabulary that enables us to say to our opponents, I've conceded the point that you've just made, but our disagreement remains. Right? right. So we right. need a very rich, textured vocabulary for managing our disagreements as citizens. The trouble, and this is the, the, the argument of the semantic dissent paper, the yeah. trouble is that, that that idiom, that vernacular, that vocabulary is never intrinsically second order. It's never intrinsically positioned above the political fray. And so when you've got a heavily polarized and partisan uh, uh, citizenry and politics in general, you're going to get the constant moving of the goalposts with this evaluative term. So that I now call you uncivil. It strikes the ear of most audience members as a second order evaluation. I'm saying, hey, you're not playing by the right rules. But in fact, I just call you uncivil when you disagree with. Yeah. And so it, it's, 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 it's pathological. And by the way, I don't think that there's a fix for this. This just strikes me as just, this is, this is one of the stubborn <laughs> problems that comes with democracy. There's no fix. There are just various ways to patch it, to, you know, try to manage it, to try to get, to, to try to get along despite it. Uh, um, but yeah, we need a second order vocabulary, but second order vocabularies are intrinsically unstable. Yeah, so I, I wondered, Bob, you know, I, I understand, uh, I'm completely with you. Uh, there's, there is no content fix for this, but I wondered if there's a process fix. For instance, you know, what we hear today is it is X 
and it is not x. So suppose we say it has to be, you cannot say it is x or not x, but it, you have to say it is x because of y. <laughs> uh, you, you have to at least have uh, something along those lines before you can argue it is X or not X, right? So that there, there is a process problem right. um, in, in this context. And I, I don't think we can change it, like you said, uh, by, you know, by, yeah, by saying, you know, people need to be more civil, like Biden was saying. Yeah, all that stuff is going to be very cosmetic. It will last for 18 hours. And we'll be back to square one. Right. Uh, but we have a society that seems to be using processes. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about decision processes or articulation that is not uh, systematic, right? It, it right. is purely a, a single sound bite uh, type, um, you know, type arguments. Uh, so, so I don't know. I mean, you can obviously not legislate this, but I wondered if there is a way to move. Uh, move the society in that direction somehow. You know, it's the it's the the million dollar question, right, or the three hundred thousand dollar question, or whatever the like whatever the appropriate amount is. So I think that you're you know we are agreeing, Gil. You know, note that you know a a, a guy like me, right? You know, I'm I, I'm a professor, right? Now, yeah. for a lot of Americans, that already makes me partisan in some way, right? right. That already makes me a, a, a non-fair player in any political discussion about how to do democracy better. Um, and so, by the way, which is just another symptom of these pathologies that we've been... So it seems to me that you're right, that there can't be the... Um, there certainly can't be any, uh, you know, sort of like rule book for democratic discussion. Yeah. And there can't, and, and you're right also, I think that the sort of more hortatory or, or ex, you know, the, the exhortations, you know, like, let's treat each other like, you know, like human beings again. And, you know, like Biden says, we're, we're opponents, but not enemies. You know, all that stuff is music, I think, to most Americans ears until you ask them, okay, yeah, but what do you think about the people on the other side? So, you know, it's very, very difficult. And it's kind of like a bootstrap problem in a way. Yeah. And I don't know what ultimately the solution is. I think that two things have to be part of the solution, though. Mm -hmm. um, and one of these things sort of uh, is an insight that comes goes all the way back to Aristotle. You know, Aristotle had a, a version of a bootstrap, like how do non-virtuous people become virtuous, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if you, you know, if, if you thought seriously about virtue, you know, you wouldn't be non-virtuous. You would be <laughs> virtuous, right? So how do you get the process running? Looks like it's a it's a it's a bootstrap problem. Yeah. And yeah. Aristotle's solution to that, which I think is deeply insightful, was about exemplars. You need to be able to look at cases where people are doing it right. That is, we need more people to say, you know what? Uh, you know, maybe even office holders can't be the ones to do this. But we need more people to exhibit mm. public virtues in ways that are highly visible so that others can see what's being done when somebody is doing it properly. That's one sort of thing. Now, how that happens, I don't know, but that's sort of getting more exemplars in public, people right. who are excellent at disagreement, uh, um, 
and can not list the rules or describe the rules, but exhibit them, I think is part of the, 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 um, uh, the, the road to solution. The second point though, I think yeah. is equally important I think that, and it connects with this idea that we need to find things to do together in which politics plays no place or politics plays no role. I think that we also need to figure out ways to interact in non-politically charged, let's say, encounters with respect to non-politically charged endeavors hmm. in which we can see one another's virtues outside of politics, in which we can see one another taking responsibility for something. Like uh, I have a, a friend who um, moved, moved into a pretty rural part of the country and um, befriended neighbors, despite the fact that they're politically on completely opposing sides of, uh, of American politics, but befriended these neighbors on the basis of um, a shared garden space. Hmm. And she told me, she said, to see these people care for something, <laughs> really showed me something about, you know, their, their virtues that have nothing to do with politics. And now it's not like I'm, I'm less opposed to their politics, she tells me. I still think that their politics are crazy, but I can no longer see them as totally failed human beings because I can see that they have knowledge and attachments and interests and projects and are able to care for things in ways that you know, humanize them. Um, and I think that we've, we've sort of lost in, in all of the, the, uh, the, the, the attempt to do politics better and to do more politics and to get out in the streets and, you know, the, all of this is what democracy looks like stuff. I think we've, there's an opportunity cost there. Let me put it that way. Yeah. That we lose the, we lose, attack, we lose connection to those simpler kinds of, encounters where we just see other people exhibiting virtues that have to do with taking responsibility and caring for things outside of politics. Yeah, and that yeah. strikes me as a real loss in a democracy. Yeah, I think it's a great place to start, Bob. I see sort of a critical mass problem here, which is, yeah. you know, unless you get enough examples, unless you see enough people doing it, it's almost like climbing a climbing a mountain, right? Mm -hmm. You are at the you are in the valley today. You got to climb the mountain to get to the other side, and so so the, the the from a policy perspective, the question remains to be: when you're at the bottom, how do you sort of get the system to move in the right direction? Uh, it might be conceptually, you know, some of these shocks that we have had, like COVID nineteen and others. Right. Uh, maybe an opportune time to, you know, to, like you say, bootstrap the system again. Right. Uh, but you need to get to that critical mass, you know, fairly quickly. Right. Otherwise, otherwise it's going to go back to where it started. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And, um, you know, that there is a high altitude, let's call it even high altitude for a conceptual uh, uh, solution uh, uh, to this. You know, is 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 a kind of promising thought because you know when I got into thinking about these issues, I was worried that there wouldn't even be a pretty abstract conceptual solution. I was just like, yeah, democracies are doomed. 
So maybe democracy is not doomed, but I think you're right that there's a kind of problem of scale that, you know, even this, this, this person who shared the story about the garden, you know, it's like, okay, well now you see this one particular, uh, as it turns out, conservative neighbor as something other than the devil. Okay. But, you know, does that really repair and rehabilitate your conception of conservatives in general? I doubt it. And so, you know, you know, one person like, okay, that's, you know, that's a nice grain of sand in the ocean. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean, it's one drop in the ocean. Um, you know, you're right that we need a, um, a kind of civic renewal yeah. that oddly enough, a lot of democratic theorists are interested in trying to be the architects of, but they are always thinking of the civic renewal as somehow organized around politics. And what <laughs> it strikes me is like, that's bound to backfire, right. right? What we need is civic renewal because we need to reacquaint ourselves with the idea that not everything is politics, that there's more to life to politics. And in yeah. fact, that part of what makes politics so important is that politics helps us to serve non-political ends. Politics, when we're doing democracy right, we are helping to create a social world in which it's easier for us to pursue goods outside of democratic politics. That's the point of the whole endeavor, as it were. Right, right. Excellent. Excellent, Bob. Uh, this has been great. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. Well, thank you, Gil. It was really nice to talk to you. Thank you. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.